Father, thanks for your goodness to us this morning, even as we reflect and rehearse the story of who you are, that you're an awesome God, that we should marvel at you, God, that because of that, our sin is easily exposed because of our imperfection, but because of your son, we have mercy. Because of your goodness, we have life and we have freedom. Help us taste that freedom this morning, God, as we look at your word together collectively. Father, would you bring your spirit to make the resurrected Christ present in and through us this morning? We ask that you would do it. We pray it in your name. Amen. <clears throat> this is posted on the website listverse.com, October 2017, this story. Listen to what this says. It says, in 2014, police officers in Spain were alerted to the presence of a gorilla outside Laurel Park Zoo. The police sent a veterinarian over who thwarted the attempted zoo escape with a tranquilizer shot. The, sport, the story spun in a different direction when the vet realized that the supposed gorilla was actually a human in a gorilla costume. <laughs> Apparently, the zoo had been holding a gorilla escape drill. One of its workers had dressed in a gorilla costume and pretended to be an escaping gorilla. This would have been a hilarious case of mistaken identity, except that the zoo later debunked the story. While they did agree that one of the staff members was shot by a veterinarian during the gorilla escape drill, they clarified that he was neither a gorilla uh, or a, in a gorilla costume, um, uh, but he had been shot by mistake. How do you not know it's like, how, do you, how does that get back that he's in a gorilla costume? Was it night? Like, I don't understand how that happened, that it somehow got reported that he was in gorilla costume. And what kind of a gorilla escape drill? Like, I'm curious what that even looks like. I, I, <laughs> but it, it, it brings up the question that we're going to address this morning is, have you ever been a part of a case of mistaken identity? Mistaken identity. Uh, my wife played softball at the University of Arizona. Uh, and they have a very uh, prestigious softball team. They've won many national championships. My wife was a part of one of those in 2001. They won the national championship uh, for softball. That's right. Go Cats. Yeah, I heard an amen out there. I like that. Sun Devils. Um, bear down. That's true. So, so this is crazy. So in 2001, the beginning of her senior year, uh, in the fall, they're getting ready. They're having practice. And all of a sudden, they get called into the police station. Every single one of the, the team on the softball members. And, and, and like, this is kind of strange. This is not putting. Why are they getting called in? Uh, apparently, there was a gal who had been saying she was on the softball team. And she was letting people know. And what happened is she somehow got the code for the locker room. And she was sneaking in for several months to the locker room when nobody was there. And she was stealing things from the locker room. She was stealing bat bags and gloves and jerseys, and she was going around telling people that she was on the Arizona softball team. And she ended up stealing somebody's debit card and using it. That's how she got caught. So the cops bring all the team in to basically say, what is the deal with this? And when they walked in, they saw like her apartment was like, it was like this creepy museum of softball memorabilia. It was crazy. And what she had told the police was, yeah, I'm on the softball team. Uh, well, you're not anywhere on the roster online. Actually, I share a number. I share a number with this other girl, number two, 
That's my wife. Number two, we share a number, and actually she helped me steal this stuff. She's actually the one that gave me the code, and, and she's the accomplice in this thing. Well, the coach was like, that's the worst person you could say was helping you with the crime because my wife was an outspoken follower of Jesus, and, and she, like it was totally debunked, but it was very, very strange that this gal was claiming to be somebody who she wasn't for months on end making people believe that, mistaken identity. The 1994 um, movie, The Lion King, there's that scene in the middle, if you're familiar with the movie, where Simba goes running away because Scar, his uncle, kills uh, Simba's dad, and he goes running because Scar tells him a lie and says, it's actually you, it's your fault that your dad died. And so that makes him, it fills him with shame. He goes running and hiding into the wilderness, if you remember the story, and then halfway through the movie, Rafiki, the monkey, comes and meets Simba. And he has this conversation with Simba, if you remember, and at one point he goes, you don't know who you are. You don't know that you're the rightful king to the throne. You, you, you've been believing this lie, and you really don't know who you are. Mistaken identity is the problem. And for most of us, we might go like, well, that's never happened to me. I never had somebody uh, steal my identity. I never had somebody say I was cooperating with them with this kind of theft ring. Like, I, that's, that's really not me. I can't identify with that. But I think for the majority of us in the room, as we're going to pay attention to what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, this is actually a problem that you don't even know you have. Just like Simba was not aware that this was a problem for him, for many of us in the room that have decided to follow Christ, we have mistaken identity because we believe more in condemnation and shame in our story than we do freedom. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning as we cover Romans chapter 8, four verses that Trevor read for us. And speaking of those four verses that he read, the first verse, just the first verse, uh, this is what Martin Lloyd-Jones, the famous wealth preacher, said, he said, most of our troubles are due to the failure to realize the truth of this verse, this single verse, Romans 8.1, that there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Lloyd-Jones also said about the book of Romans as a whole book, he said, it is the brightest gem of all. He's talking about the New Testament, specifically the scriptures. He says, someone has said that the whole scripture the brightest and most lustrous and flashing stone or collections of stone is this epistle to the Romans. And that of these, he's talking about chapter 8, is the brightest gem of the cluster. The most moving chapter in Romans is chapter 8. So some scholars, some people believe that in all of the New Testament, that Romans is the best uh, essence of the gospel, of our true freedom. It's maybe the best book of all of the New Testament. And most people, most scholars say, actually, chapter 8 is the best of Romans as a whole. Tim Keller, who's a pastor, says it this way. He says, the book of Romans is the most sustained explanation of the heart of the gospel and the most thrilling exploration of how that gospel goes to work in our hearts. And so we're gonna be looking for seven weeks at Romans chapter eight in its entirety, in all 39 verses together for the seven weeks. And we're entitling this series, Life in the Spirit. And our prayer is that as we engage Romans chapter eight over the next seven weeks, that you will find your heart thrilled by the Spirit, your mind shaped by the Spirit, 
and your life changed by the Spirit. Many of us, especially in Reformed circles, which this church is a Reformed church, man, there's not a lot of conversation about the Holy Spirit. He either gets categorized into this like crazy uncle category, like I don't, I'm not sure what to do with the Holy Spirit. I know he's important. I know he's a part of the Godhead. He's part of the Trinity, but I don't exactly know what he's supposed to do in my life actively, or he's just kind of like dormant, like he doesn't even really get talked about at all. And the Holy Spirit is one of my three favorites. <laughs> might get that joke. Uh, and so we're going to be talking about the Spirit for the next seven weeks in the context of Romans chapter 8, and there's a reason why. Uh, if you're not familiar with the book of Romans, um, Paul, the epistle, Paul wrote the book of Romans, and most scholars believe that Paul wrote this letter to the church in Rome on his third missionary journey to Corinth, just to give us some context. And what was happening in the church at the time is the church was divided. Big surprise. The church is divided. We still haven't figured that one out. Um, and the reason for the division mostly is because the Jewish and the Gentiles uh, coming under the newness of what it meant to walk in Christ, they were fighting about that, what that actually meant. And so Paul writes this letter to the church in Rome. Uh, and the reason, again, he is trying to help unify the church by giving the fullest explanation of the gospel so that Rome could be a future launching point for his next ministry to Spain as he continued to have the gospel go out. That was kind of the whole plan of writing and the purpose of writing this letter to the church in Rome. And the first seven chapters, since we're jumping in to chapter eight, just to give you context, the first seven chapters explain the wonderful truths of the gospel of justification by faith, of union with Christ, of salvation through Christ alone and not through our works. And then the second half of the book, chapters 8 through 16, Paul is going to continue to answer the question he begins in chapters 5, 6, and 7. And that question is, how does faith in the gospel in Christ actually lead to change in real life? I can understand how I positionally am changed, and so when I die, I go to heaven, eternity is secure, but, but how does it actually play out in my everyday life? What does that actually mean? And again, chapter 8 will be focused on our time in the next seven weeks with this word, the Spirit, it's capital S, Spirit, Holy Spirit, 21 times in these 39 verses in chapter 8, Paul uses the word pneuma, the original language, which is Spirit, capital S, all but two times. In verse 15 and verse 16, you see it's a lowercase s, uh, but the rest, it's uh, uppercase because it's referring to the Holy Spirit, God in the form of the Holy Spirit. And so that's why we're entitling this, uh, this, this series, Life in the Spirit. And the big idea that we're going to run down in the four verses that we're going to cover today at the beginning of uh, this series is that true freedom is found in Christ and through His Spirit. True freedom is found in Christ and through his spirit. And the reason we aren't experiencing true freedom, just like the church in Rome that Paul is writing to, is because functionally we live in a case of mistaken identity. We don't know who we are. We might know who we are in Christ and his work on the cross, but do we know how to be empowered by his spirit? I would say for many of us in the room, that is an area of lacking that Paul is going directly after to say, you have life, you have freedom, you have everything you need to live the victorious Christian life. But oftentimes we don't lean on that, we don't depend on that, we depend on ourselves. So Paul's going like, you, because you are in Christ, you're positionally free, and now you have the freedom to live the way that God wants you to live. 
So that's what we're going to run after uh, this morning. Uh, if you have a Bible that's already open, open it up to Romans chapter 8. We're just four verses this morning, which feels like massively refreshing to me. It's not two chapters in Isaiah or three chapters in 1 Kings. We're actually just covering four verses this morning. Um, it feels fantastic. So Romans chapter 8, we're going to look at the first two verses and unpack them and then look at the second two verses and unpack them for what it means for us and our living today. So Romans chapter 8, verse 1 and 2 says this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. Let's stop and just give some context and unpack this a little bit. So um, th this is tricky for us when we read the New Testament. And just like any language, just like in our English language, we can use one word and it can have different meanings. So the word squash can mean like you squash a bug. It can mean the, the food, the squash, or it could be like that goofy game you play. How do you play squash? I don't know how you play squash. But it's got different meanings for the same word. The same thing is true in the word law. So it's important for us to understand the original context of what Paul is trying to say here. In verses 1 and 2, he uses the word law in one way. And then verses 3 and 4, he uses the word law in a different way. But it's the same word for us. So it can get confusing for us. So verses 1 and 2, these are kind of the, the three ways that the word law gets used in the original language. It's one of these three things. It's either God's law or his standards, the Mosaic law, which is actually the way he's going to use it in verses 3 and 4. Or it could be uh, the law is just a general principle. You have laws by the government. Or three, law means this idea of force or power, which is how he actually uses it in the first two verses here. That's actually how the New Living Translation uh, translates this verse. It doesn't say law. It actually has power in that word. And, and the reason that most scholars think this is backing up to what he is saying in your Bible in uh, chapter 7, verses 23. Now, this makes more sense for the context of the same word. So if we read it again, we would say, There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the power of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the power of sin and death. So verse 1 is giving us this explanation that there's no condemnation for the person that has put their faith in Jesus. So if you have made the decision, if somebody has uh, told you who Jesus is and how you need him for life and forgiveness, and you said, yes, I'm going to surrender my life to you, I'm going to give my life to you, I'm going to repent for my sins, I know I need Jesus, and you commit your life to him, there is no condemnation for you. Condemnation is a word that only gets used three times in the New Testament. Once here and twice in Romans 5. It's the only time it gets used. And the word condemnation literally means like your, your, your sentencing or your judgment to death. That's what this word means. And so again, backing up into Romans chapter 5, this is the argument that Paul is building on when he goes to verse 1 of chapter 8. There's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Because in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, you don't have to turn there, but if you're not familiar with that passage, Paul is basically outlining that what happens is Adam brings sin into the world because of his behavior. The first uh, humans decide not to follow God. They decide to follow themselves. And because of that, there's ripple effects of consequences that the Bible call sin. 
And he says, because Adam brought sin into the world based on his behavior, there's a second Adam that comes, who is Christ. He's talking about in Romans chapter 5. He brings freedom into the world based on his behavior, his life, his death, and his resurrection. So now, if you believe in Jesus, if you've given your life to him, you can be freed from the penalty of sin as a gift of grace. Those in Christ escape condemnation that came to people because of Adam's sin. So if you're in Christ, you have a position of freedom. Now, most of us have been around the church for a while. We go, yeah, yeah, I know that. That's, that's not new. I understand that. I understand the work of Christ, that I'm, I'm freed in him. But most of us don't understand that it's not just from freedom from your past sins. It's not freedom from your present sins. It's also freedom from your future sins. That there's no condemnation. There's no penalty for those that are in Christ Jesus. And again, in chapter 7, which is the direct concept, uh, context that uh, Paul is pulling from, if you're familiar with that, that section right before we jump into 8, he's going back and forth. Paul is going back and forth. Now, there's some debate, even within scholarly debate, of if Paul is talking if this is pre his conversion or post his conversion. I would think it's post his conversion, like a lot of people. And the reason is he's warring back and forth between his flesh. He's going, man, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, I actually do. And he talks about this war waging inside between the flesh and the spirits. And his conclusion, as he comes to the end of that, he's going, actually, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we typically don't know how to handle that because most of us let shame and condemnation be the voices that dictate how we live. We do. Think about when you sin. Man, you're trying to walk with Jesus and you, you blow it for some reason and you realize, man, I, I just blew it. I, I talked uh, mean to someone. I, I, I looked at something I shouldn't have looked at. Like I, did, I spent money where I didn't need to spend money. You name the list. Like how do you feel as soon as you finish doing that thing? You get pulled by the flesh. You do that thing. And then what happens after that? Do you feel shame and kind of condemnation? Are you letting that feeling kind of dictate your next couple of steps, or do you feel freedom? This is what Paul's trying to address here is going like, if you're in Christ Jesus, you're free. You're not condemned. And that should produce not this idea of like, well, I got to try better. I got to do better. I got to try better. It should produce this freedom and love and joy and going like, man, why did I do that? That's not the best for me. That's not what I really need. That's not producing freedom in my life. It changes the way you live when you realize you're not condemned because of what Christ has done for you. And this is what Paul's saying. He's warring back and forth in chapter 7. Man, I, I'm not doing what I want to do, and I'm, and I'm struggling with this. And this is what he says there's freedom. At the end of Romans chapter 5, verse 25, this is how he says it. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law the power of God with my mind, but my flesh, I serve the law or power of sin. So not only are we free from condemnation in Christ in verse one, but in Christ, you're also free from incarceration. So you're freed, you're declared free. You don't get slapped with the judgment of sin and death because what Jesus has done, there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Jesus. 
It's done. It's paid for. What Jesus has done is enough payment for your sin. Some of us, when we sin, we feel so guilty about sinning again. And what we're actually saying is what Jesus did on the cross is not enough. It's not enough what he did on the cross. It's not enough that he gave his life. It's not enough that he bled what he bled because, oh, my sin again. I messed up again. And it's going like, listen, Jesus paid for it. He paid for it. You're not under debt anymore if you're in Christ. Not only are you freed in your condemnation, but verse 2 is telling us now we're freed in how we live. So you're freed in salvation, but you're also freed in your sanctification, how you should continue to live with Christ. Look at verse 2 again. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. You no longer have bondage if you are a believer. You're set free. And most of us live in bondage. We live with that shame attached to our heart. We live with that anxiety. We live with those things consistently. We don't know how to shake them. We don't know what to do with them. And what Paul is saying is like you're not only free in the declaration, but you're also free in how you live. You're free from that bondage of your heart. Verse 1 deals with our justification, with our legal guilts and our internal corruption. Verse 2, our sanctification deals with our growth, all being not of the work of the flesh, but the work of the Spirit. And so when you go, okay, I'm free from that sin I just committed, I understand that I'm also free that I don't have to work hard to make it right again which most of us feel like we do, right? We sin, we feel really bad, we go, okay, I'm not gonna do that anymore. I'm gonna read my Bible more, I'm gonna go to church more, I'm gonna be in a community group more, and that's all works of the flesh. Are those bad things? They're not bad things. Those are helpful things. You need to be in environments of growth, but the idea is, no, I'm freed now. I'm not in bondage anymore to work my way right. And this is where he continues to go in verses three and four. Like, how how is that true? How is it true that God's mercy is more? It's bigger than our sin. It doesn't make sense to us. We don't compute it. But how is it true? Verse 3 says, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. And again, now he's using law in the, the mosaic sense of the law. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So again, the way Paul is using law now, he's talking about the Mosaic law, the 10 commandments that Moses brings down and says, these are the guidelines, these are the guardrails. You wanna learn what it means to be fully human, to be in a right relationship with me. Here's how you need to live. This is what it means to live and honor me and it's a reflection of who God is. And for us, it's helpful to realize when Jesus gets asked in Matthew 22, these religious leaders, they, it says the text says they try, they try to trick them, they try to trap them. And they say, what's, what's the biggest law of all the laws? And how does Jesus respond in Matthew 22? You guys know, to love God with all of your everything. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. So he's saying this encapsulates all of the Mosaic law. 
So we could even read into this verse in verses 3 and 4, this idea of learning to love God and love people. So when we read it, for God has done what uh, not loving God and loving people weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh for, and for sin. He condemned the sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of loving God and loving people might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. How does God give us freedom from condemnation and freedom to live the way he calls us to live? He sends his son to declare us free. He sends his son to become sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that. His son becomes a sin offering, being the legal debt to pay for the sin that we deserve. God sends his spirit to enable and empower us so again, you, you can understand that. Most of us in the room go, okay, I get that part. I get that part of the cross, the work of Jesus on the cross. I'm freed. I'm, I'm going to be guaranteed with heaven. I understand that. And, and that's what's guaranteed here because of what verse 3 says. But what verse 4 says is not only are you freed from that, but God sends his spirit. He sends him to enable you to live and empower you to live and obey God's love, loving God and loving people. Why did God do that in verse 4? So that we might live a free and holy life in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So what this verse is saying is not only you're freed in your justification, you're freed in your sanctification, and I'm calling you as the church to love God and love people. I'm calling you to love God and love people, and I'm not asking you to do it on your own. I'm actually sending my spirit to empower you to do it. This is the part that's hard for us to understand because some of us aren't living in that type of freedom. We're still living as prisoners. We don't, we feel like we are condemned. We feel like shame is dictating our story and we don't feel free to love God and to love others by the power of his spirit. We think we have to do it on our own, in our flesh. And for some of us, we have this idea of being prisoners. And I love the song we sang during Easter uh, last week, Hallelujah for the Cross. And there's a line in that that says, I was a prisoner, but now I'm not. And that idea is, yes, you were a prisoner, you were a slave to your sin, now you're freed for heaven, you're freed for eternity, but it's not just for your salvation, it's for your sanctification. Because if I'm honest, I feel like a prisoner every day to certain things. I feel like a prisoner to my anxiety, to my worry. I feel like a prisoner to certain relationships that are unhealthy. Do you ever have that? Like you're going like, I don't know what to say to this person. I don't know how to move towards them in love, or I'm just angry. They've hurt me. They've betrayed me. And what that verse is saying, what this text is saying is you're not a prisoner to that person anymore. You're not a prisoner to anxiety anymore. You can be set free. How are you set free? By the power of God's spirit. Not with your own flesh, not with your own things, but as you trust God's spirit, as you in vulnerability and humility and dependence go, God, I need you. I need you in this conversation. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. And as you have that type of posture in those type of situations, do you know what happened? God empowers you to take the next step in love and freedom. But often we don't do that. <laughs> We just try and figure it out on our own. We want to hold control. We don't want to be vulnerable. We don't want to be dependent. It goes against our thinking. It goes against our flesh. And so we want to hold control. And then we get stuck in this cycle. 
And we stay prisoners when we're really free. I was watching this video with my son the other day, and um, it's one of these, uh, do you guys ever watch uh, these videos? Uh, what's, it, what's it called the, um, that we watch all the time? The, at the end of the day, we watch it. Daily Dose. This is Daily Dose, right? Like, it's all these videos smashed together. It's like three minutes long, and it's just these small, funny videos together that this person compiles. And so we watched the Daily Dose of Internet, and one of the clips was uh, this, this horse trainer talking about how uh, they put an imaginary bridle on this horse. They just walked up to the horse. There's no bridle, and they start going like this to the horse. And then the horse thinks it's on a bridle, and they start walking like this, and the horse just follows because it just thinks it's, like, got the bridle on them. And for some of us, that's how we're living our lives. Shame gets into our conversations. It gets into um, our narrative, and it's kind of that invisible idea, and we just follow shame along the way. And Paul's saying, you're free of that. It's like the idea of the old prisoners that have the ball and chain attached to them so they can't go anywhere. They're stuck. They're imprisoned. And the Spirit comes along because of the Son, and He cuts the chain because of the blood and the body of Christ, and all of a sudden, you're set free, and you know what you do? You pick up the ball and you walk around with it <laughs> because you, you don't know that you're free in Christ. You don't know that the Spirit has set you free because that shame is so powerful and you so don't want to release your control and be humble and dependent on Him that you just live your life that way. And Paul's saying, don't do that. You're free. You're free. I want to empower you to live the way that God has called you to live. And I love this language in verse 4. For those of us that walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. I love the walking language because you don't come out of the womb walking, right? Like, you, you all know, like, it's like one of our first athletic things. Like, we, we take these stumbly steps and, and we fall, and what do we do? We get back up, and hopefully you have a parent going, good job, you can do it, and then you fall, and then you get back up, and you keep walking until you walk so much that you don't even think about walking. This is what Paul's saying, like, as you depend moment by moment in prayer on my spirit, the more you do it, the more it becomes second nature. You don't rely on yourself. You rely on the freedom that I give you in the spirit to work in and through you. And you're praying in those conversations. You're praying in those situations. You're praying when you feel anxious in your heart. You're going, God, I need you to show up. I need you to help me. I know your power is here. Would you move in and through me? And it starts to become like walking. Who are you in Christ? Do you understand who you are, right? That, that, that's where this is centered, the idea of being in Christ. If you've given your life to him, you're now adopted by him. You are secured in him, and you're empowered by his spirit. As we close, I want to show this short clip of a pastor in Cleveland. His name's Alistair Begg. He's been in Cleveland as a pastor for, uh, since the 1980s, and he's talking about this idea of position in Christ, this idea of uh, why you're secure in who you are. And some of you have maybe seen this video, so let's just walk, watch it to remind ourselves this idea of being in Christ. Yeah. The man in the middle cross said, I can come. That's it. 
That's where we're positioned in Christ for what he has done for us. But not only that, the same is true of how we're empowered to live the victorious Christian life. It's not because I, it's not because I, it's because he sends his spirit to work in and through me. You are saved by Jesus' work on the cross and you are empowered by his spirit sent to work in and through you to freedom, not to live in shame anymore, not to live in condemnation anymore, not to live in anxiety anymore, but to live in freedom, to love God and to love other people. That's what it means to walk in the Spirit. And next week, we'll talk more about what that looks like practically. But this morning, if you found yourself in Christ, you've given your life to Him, as you come down to the table this morning, be reminded that there's no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. What you've done, even last night, last week, there's no condemnation. There's freedom found in the cross. The things you've done, the things you've failed at as you're trying to be a parent, I'm a parent. I don't know what I'm, t I'm so glad that I'm free in Christ, that I can come to the table and go, this is where I find my worth, this is where I find my freedom. It's not anywhere else but Jesus. Let's do that this morning. Let's pray. Father, would you be with us this morning? Thanks for sending your son to make it possible to have a relationship with you. Thanks for your spirit who raised Jesus from the dead that now lives inside of us, empowering us to love you and love other people. Will we be reminded of it in a tangible and practical way this morning as we come and respond to you. Thanks, Jesus, for loving us so well. We ask that you would meet us in this time and space. We pray in your name. Amen.